Want to learn ways to reduce your taxes in 2024? Of course you do. Don't be silly. We'll stick around and find out how in this, the 80th episode of the Rebooted Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Hey, y'all. Good to be back. Glad to see you again. It is 2024. It's a new year. It is the rebooted version of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. It's definitely been a minute. I stopped doing new episodes back in June of last year of 2023. Here we are now, January 2024. As I mentioned, glad to be back, and uh, hopefully you're all looking forward to this. Yes, there will be sound effects in this rebooted version. Apologies in advance for how cheesy this is going to be, but it makes me giggle, so I'm going with it. Uh, don't stop me. So anyway, no, today uh, is the first episode of the new version of Retirement Planning Education Podcast. For those who, who didn't catch the last episode where I kind of give a, a brief overview of the new structure, I'm going to do is one show a month will be kind of what you're familiar with me doing a sort of deep dive-ish thing into a certain topic. Another week each month will be me interviewing a fellow retirement focused financial planner slash financial advisor. We will have the first one on next week. My buddy, Larry Pershing will be on joining me. I'm looking forward to that. Another week each month is going to be me kind of interviewing or having a chat with a regular person who, who is uh, in or near retirement and, and does their own retirement planning. Maybe they work with an advisor, maybe they don't, that, that's not particularly important. It's just I want to talk with real people doing real things in terms of thinking about planning for, investing for, tax managing, et cetera, uh, their own retirements. So that should be interesting. I'm hoping you all will, will find... Uh, correlation or you know similarities and differences between yourselves and your your circumstances and stories with with these folks and hopefully you all will, will get a little something out of it. Another uh, week each month is going to be a Q and A where you can send me questions at andypanko at gmail .com. You can find a link to that in, uh, in the notes of the show. Link to that email. And then for the couple of months that have a, uh, a five five Thursdays, you know five weeks or five episodes in a month. I'm not yet sure what I'm going to do there. I'll figure something out and throw it in. Call it a bonus, if you will. Um, all right, let's get into it. I'm a little rusty, so apologies if the flow isn't as smooth as it was. Not that the flow is ever really that smooth with this, but um, take me a few episodes to kind of get, get my cadence again. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do each episode with a dad joke, just because why not? Who doesn't love cheesy, corny, painful, unfunny humor? I know I do. Hoping you do too. So since we are fresh off Christmas, for those that celebrate Christmas, I have a Christmas-themed dad joke for you. And it goes, it goes a little something like this. For her Christmas present, I took my wife to an orchard and we'd stood there looking at the trees for half an hour. Apparently, this was not the Apple Watch she was expecting. Right? How about that? Yeah. Terrible. I know. I love it. It was delicious. All right. So that's the dad joke. Uh, moving on. So today, I'm going to talk about this will be one, I guess you can call this a deep dive. Actually, this is, this is a weird one because I'm going to be recapping an article I recently read that I thought was worth sharing. The article is from the Wall Street Journal. It was published on December 29th, 2023. I will add a link to it in the notes. 
I'll try to do the, uh, so Wall Street Journal is a paid, ver uh, paid service you are able to do like a, a free shareable link and that's the link on a copy. Although in the past, some people have told me they weren't able to use the shared link. It still throws up the paywall, but I'll, I'll put the link and hope for the best. Hopefully you can read it. If not, no big deal because I'm basically going to recap it all for you anyway. Plus, plus gives a little, little added extra. And for those of you that do subscribe to my company's newsletter, if you don't, first of all, why not? Uh, you should, cause it's awesome. But I, I did uh, recap this article cause I thought it was that good. I recapped this article in the January edition of my company's newsletter, newsletter, which is called Retirement Planning Insights. You can find a link to that newsletter uh, in, in the, the notes of this show. And if you're not if you're already a subscriber, you definitely should. I'm not just saying that. It really is that good. Right. All right. So the, the article I recapped, it is called To Lower Your Taxes in 2024, Make These Moves Now. Let me start by saying, I don't like that title. I don't like, this is what's called clickbait. For those who haven't heard the term clickbait, it's basically uh, whether it's a, a video or a blog or a podcast where the title of it is something splashy, catchy, sensationalist, made to grab your attention. Like, you got to do this now. Here's five things you must do. Today. It's no. Um, I, I get why people do it because whatever. But uh, this article, <laughs> My gripe with it, the stuff in it is good, as you'll see. You know, the content, the recommendations, the tips, they're not specific to 2024, though. It's, it's general uh, good things to always keep in mind about tax planning and tax reductions. It's not 2024 specific. But I guess when you, when you write articles, and I can see this, having done this podcast for a while and doing YouTube videos and stuff and, and writing a monthly newsletter for man, over five years at this point almost, um, it's hard to keep coming up with content. So you kind of have to recycle things. You have to, uh, you know, repurpose the same stuff, just give it a different different title. Like, for example, maybe they wrote the same article last year and the year before and the year before, but they'll just keep kind of repurposing it for 2024, 2025, 2020, whatever. So not to take away from the quality of what's in there. It's just, I don't know, it's not specific to 2024. And it kind of irks me that they use this title for that. But whatever, Wall Street Journal is much more of a bigger deal than I am. And so clearly they're doing something right. All right, so the, the tips it mentions to lower your taxes in 2024 are as follows. It says, I will keep an eye on my AGI. So AGI stands for Adjusted Gross Income. It is one of the most important measures on your tax return. I'm oversimplifying, but it is basically all of your sources of income that are taxable, that are included in your, your taxable income. Uh, adjusted for certain things, like certain deductions. Like if you make a, a contribution to a health savings account or HSA, you can deduct that from your gross income. If you make a, a contribution to an IRA, you know, investment account, you can potentially deduct that from your income. So AGI or adjusted gross income is the culmination of all those things, all of your taxable income minus these things you can sort of reduce out. It's not deductions yet. I'm not talking about standard deduction or itemized deductions. It's just certain things that you're able to take out your income sort of right off the top. That's AGI, adjusted gross income. Why does that matter? Well, A, I mean, it's a starting point for what your, your ultimate taxable income is going to be, and that's the amount on which you have to pay tax. But it's also a measure that lots of other things are keyed off of, be it taxes or other sort of tax-like things. For example, if you're on Medicare, the amount of premium you have to pay for, the, for Part B and Part D could be higher than the base, the normal level of premium. There is something called IRMA, I-R-M-A-A, -A, which stands for Income-Related Monthly Adjustment Amount, which is, uh, in effect, just a means-tested 
uh, income-based surcharge, premium surcharge, where you may have to pay more for your Medicare premiums if your income is over certain thresholds. And there's uh, five or six thresholds where there's increasingly more surcharge. That's keyed right off your AGI. It starts with your AGI and adds in uh, tax-exempt interest in, in this particular case for, for Medicare IRMA. But that's from your AGI. There's other things like that that play off your AGI. There's something called the net investment income tax, where if your AGI is over, uh, I think it's 250000 if you're married, 200 if you're single, I could be wrong, but I think those are right. There's an extra 3.8% federal tax on any passive income, such as dividends, interest, capital gains from selling things at a, at a, at a gain in a brokerage account. That's net investment income tax. Again, keyed right off your AGI. Now, technically, it's, it's modified adjusted gross income that these things look at, or, or what I call MAGI, M-A-G-I. But nonetheless, it all starts with AGI and then makes certain tweaks to it to get to MAGI or modified adjusted gross income. Uh, I'll leave that one there for now, but I, I did do a, a detailed discussion of a few different MAGIs you are likely to see if you're in or near retirement in episode 27 of this podcast. And you can find a link to that in the notes to this show. So that was number one. I will keep an eye on my AGI. To the extent you can manage that, keep that low, great. Sometimes you can't, but if you can, be aware of it and, and know how that could play into other things uh, on your tax return or like Medicare surcharges, for example. Next way to lower your taxes in 2024, which is really lower your taxes anytime because this is not 2024 specific, I won't let a low income year go to waste. This is a good one. Uh, those that are uh, cognizant of tax planning and their own income tax scenarios and, and sort of long-term management of taxes, this is good. So there are, as you probably know, in the federal tax brackets, there's a bunch of different, well, not a bunch, there's uh, five or six, maybe seven brackets that are called marginal. Not all of your dollars earned or received are taxed at the same rate. The first dollars you, you earn or received are taxed at a low rate, 10% is the first rate federally. The next dollars above and beyond that are taxed at 12%. The next dollars above and beyond that are taxed at 22%, then 24, then 32, et cetera. Um, it's quite common if you're in retirement, especially the early years of retirement, you may be in a really low tax situation where you're only in the 10 or maybe 12% federal tax bracket. So example of this would be you are recently retired so you, you no longer have wages. Let's assume you retired December 31st, 2023. You were making $200,000 a year, whatever, it doesn't matter. You're making some sort of wages. Those all went away. So for 2024, you now have no wages. Your wages are zero. Maybe that was uh, basically your, your sole source of income other than maybe some interest in bank accounts and uh, perhaps, I don't know, some dividends from a brokerage account. Uh, so point is, stripping out your wages now, you may have really low taxable income where it's only a few thousand bucks, 5,000 bucks, whatever. You're in a really low tax bracket. You may think, okay, awesome. I'm winning at taxes because my tax bill is going to be so low. I'm going to owe, you know, whatever, a hundred bucks or something this year in total or, you know, something silly small. Might feel good, but probably not the best long-term tax planning thing to do, particularly in the case where, let's say you have a pension that's going to start at some point, or you have social security that's going to start at some point, or you have a sizable amount of money in pre-tax retirement slash investment accounts like a traditional 401k, IRA, 403b, federal thrift savings plan, or a 457 plan or something. Let's say you got you know, a million, $2 million or whatever in there. That money that is all going to need to be distributed and taxed eventually. So why wait 
and do it down the road when your pension's going to be on, when your social security is going to be on, when you're already going to have that much more income in the future, why wait till then to take money out of these pre-tax accounts when it's going to be taxed higher than it would be if you take it out today because your income's low because it's only, like I said, whatever, $5,000. That's all you got now. So it could be uh, quite wise to intentionally and consciously pull money out of your IRA, your 401k, whatever, realize the income on it now, pay tax on it now. This is what's called filling up your lower tax brackets. Don't let the 10 or 12% federal tax bracket go unused, especially if you're going to have more income in the future. If you're never going to have other income in the future, then it doesn't particularly matter because you will always be in a low tax situation. But that's probably not common, probably not your case. Um, you know, assuming you will have more income in the future, it could be good to, to intentionally pull some of that forward now where you're only paying 10 or 12% tax on it as opposed to who knows what it's going to be in the future. Uh, you know, 22, 24, 25, whatever tax rates might be, we don't yet know. So that's not letting a low income year go to waste. There's a few ways you can fill up th- those lower brackets. One is just taking an outright distribution from your IRA, from your TSP, from your 403, uh, 401k, whatever. One is doing a Roth conversion. We've, we've talked about this ad nauseum throughout the podcast and YouTube channel and, and, and Facebook group. Um, that's another way to, to consciously give yourself some income now and fill up tax brackets. Another way is tax gain harvesting. A little more technical. I did a, a video, an episode on this before, but this is where if you're in a, a really low taxable income situation and you have some unrealized gains on positions in a brokerage account, like stocks, like mutual funds, like whatever, you can intentionally sell off some of those, realize the gain on it, and that gain could potentially be taxed at zero. Some or all of it could be taxed at zero federally if your taxable income is low enough. Now, everything I'm saying now, this is just from the federal uh, tax perspective. Keep in mind, there's also state tax implications if you live in a state that has income tax. So those rules could be very different than what I'm saying now that I'm just mentioning a federal tax treatment. So these are all ways to, to not let low income years go to waste. Uh, might feel good to have a low tax bill, but if you can control it, you want to uh, smooth out, you know, pull forward income that's otherwise going to be taxed higher in the future, uh, you know, pay tax on it today instead. That was two. Third way to pay less taxes in 2024 is I will be aware of state tax traps in money market funds. This one's interesting and uh, timely. So a money market fund or money market mutual fund is, is a mutual fund where it is cash-like or cash equivalent. You put money in, it's virtually impossible for you to lose any principal. So whatever you put in, you will get out at least that much and you will get interest on it. Some, some non-zero positive amount of interest. Typically interest will be accrued daily and paid out once a month or something to you. But nonetheless, every day you're in this money market mutual fund, you will accrue some rate of interest. And again, chances of losing principal are, are virtually zero. So you can, in effect, take that off the table as, as a possibility. Um, Two years ago, before interest rates really started to shoot up as, as inflation rose, you know, during the depths of the pandemic, interest rates were near zero, if not zero. The interest rate on money market mutual funds w- was a joke. It was, I don't even know, 0.10% or something, you know, 0.1%, give or take. Now, with as much as rates have risen in the last couple of years, interest rates are easily five plus percent. And this is net of fees, you know, net of the fund expense ratios. Interest rates, as of the recording of this podcast, early January 2024, Interest rates are easily a little over 5% on money market mutual funds. So a lot of people have put a lot of money into these in the last year or so because it's, it's not technically guaranteed, but really safe. Uh, and, you, and you know you can get 5 plus percent interest. It's 
pretty compelling. I shouldn't say you should put all your money in there, but it's a pretty compelling place to keep you know, non-trivial amounts of money while, while rates are so high. Um, bringing it back to, to why there's potentially a state tax trap, according to the Wall Street Journal, is the way in which interest is, is taxed on certain things held within these money market accounts. So because they need to be safe and ideally protect your principal, money market mutual funds invest in a combination of a few things. One, probably the most common, is uh, treasury securities, you know, debt obligations issued by the United States Treasury backed by the full faith and credit of the United States Treasury. The interest that those things pay is not taxable at the state level. Regardless what state you live in, interest from tre- direct treasury obligations is not taxable at the state level. Money market mutual funds, not all of them, but a lot of them have most or all of their investments in U.S. Treasury securities. So many people think by default, all interest I'm getting from this money market fund is indirectly interest from Treasury securities. Therefore, it is not going to be taxable income to me at the state level. In some funds, that's true. Some funds that only invest purely in U.S. Treasuries, that is accurate. But a lot of money market funds invest in other different things. They'll invest in some short-term corporate debt, corporate bonds. They will invest in things called commercial paper, which is another form of uh, corporate debt. They will invest in something called repo or repurchase agreements. And this is where it gets a little tricky. And this is what the article is uh, pointing to. A repurchase agreement is a loan that a large financial institution makes to another where that loan is backed by treasury securities as collateral. So on the surface, people may see this and be like, oh, that's a treasury security. So the interest I'm getting in my money market is therefore interest from a treasury security, therefore tax-free at the state level. Not true. The interest you're getting is actually interest from this repo loan. It's not interest directly from the treasury. The treasury is just the collateral behind the loan. So anytime you have a money market fund who does repo or repurchase agreements on U.S. treasuries, the interest your fund is getting from those repos will be taxable at the state level, unless your state specifically excludes it. And again, I don't know every state's tax rules, but the point is it's very different. This is not directly interest from treasuries. It is interest from loans that one institution made to another. You should assume it will be taxable at the state level. So um, if you only have you know, 100 bucks in a money market fund, this isn't going to matter because it's a rounding error on your state tax return. But a lot of people have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in these money market mutual funds because rates are so high, this can add up at the state level. And to the extent you're, you're thinking that you're, you know, whatever, $20,000 of interest in your money market fund is going to be free from state income tax. And guess what? Ends up it is all taxable because it's repo interest, not treasury interest. That, that could sting a little bit. So be aware of that. The takeaway is you have to um, know the specific money market mutual fund you're investing in what it holds, how it generates interest. Is it pure interest directly from treasuries or is it from other things, from repos, from commercial paper, from short-term corporate bonds, whatever. So that, that was the next one. Uh, moving on. Uh, the uh, Another thing to reduce your taxes in 2024 or any year for that matter is I will act quickly on tax planning if my spouse or the spouse of someone close to me dies. This one's morbid. Um, can't, can't avoid it. So it's morbid, but it's important. And now it does sound callous, and I suppose it is if you weren't already um, aware of this or thinking about this, but where the article is going with this is that people who are married and file a joint tax return, uh, all else equal, pay lower taxes than people who are single for a given dollar. I'm wording this clunkily. 
if, if you're single and you have $100 of taxable income, the tax you pay on that will be higher than if you are married, file a joint return, and collectively, as a married unit, have $100 of income. The married couple will pay less tax on that $100 than a single person would, is, is what I'm trying to say. So married couples have more preferential tax brackets. The, the brackets are larger. The, the income levels at which each tax rate starts and stops is larger with married couples as is the standard deduction is larger. It's double compared to what it is for a single person. So the, the gist of this, this point here is that if you're married and your spouse unfortunately dies during the year, you can still file a, a, a married joint tax return for that year in the year of death, regardless what point in the year your spouse died, whether your spouse died January 1st, December 31st, or any day in between, you can still file a married filing joint tax return in that year of death. Why is this beneficial? And this is why it's going to sound callous and, and crass and morbid. But the years after this, after the, the year of your spouse's death, you have to start filing as a single taxpayer and you will then have the lower, smaller tax brackets and standard deduction. Unless you remarry, in which case you can file as married again, you'll have to start filing a single. There's some other exceptions. If you have a dependent or, or a minor child at home, you can file something called head of household, which can uh, lower your taxes. But let's assume you know, you're an adult, you're retired, you don't have no dependents or, or young children. Um, after the year of death, you will have to start filing as a single taxpayer. Tax brackets collapse and they get smaller. So you can do some planning here. Again, sounds callous, but if, if your spouse is sick, for example, and has been terminally ill for a year or so, and so you know, for better or worse, you, you knew this day was coming, and uh, you are able to, um, how do I say this? You know, you're going to, there'd be a lot of emotions, obviously, but if you can also realize, hey, this last year after my spouse dies is I'm going to have the highest sort of most favorable tax brackets I'm ever going to have the rest of my life unless I remarry, I could take advantage of this. And so maybe you do a large Roth conversion or again, going back to that, like filling up the tax bracket thing consciously pull out some money from your 401k or IRA that you don't need now, but you're otherwise going to have to take out in future years. Might as well do it now when it'll be taxed lower because you can still file as married as opposed to wait in the future when that income is going to be taxed as single and therefore uh, you're going to pay, pay pay more tax on it. So I feel like I kind of stumbled through that one, but hopefully you, um, I was trying to like dance delicately with my wording. I don't want to just sound too direct about this because I, because I realize the importance um, you know, emotionally of, of a spouse passing. And I don't mean to trivialize that, nor does the article, the Wall Street Journal article. But um, you know, I'm trying to get, get a point across that there is, if you can say, um, you know, clear-headed enough and, uh, I, don't know, I don't know where I'm going with this. I feel like I need to keep trying to soften my stance on this and not just come out, be bluntly and say it. But um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. The year the spouse dies, you can still file a married tax return, married joint tax return, all the years thereafter, unless you remarry or have a small, uh, you know, young child or dependent, you'll have to file a single in, in your tax brackets reduce. So there is a potential opportunity to be had in the year of your spouse's death, which, you know, is going to be tough for some people to uh, think clearly about and take advantage of, but just be aware that it's an opportunity. All right, moving on. That one was painful. Uh, next way to lower your taxes in 2024, where am I? I will keep records of my home improvements. Again, this isn't specific to 2024, but uh, why does this matter? So when you have a house that you use as your primary residence, if you've owned it and lived in it for at least two out of the last five years prior to the date of when you sell it, 
you can exclude some of the gain, if you do have any gain on it, you can exclude some of the gain from being taxable. A house is an asset. Like any asset you sell, uh, you know, all is equal. If you sell it for more than you bought it for, that's a gain and you have to pay tax on that gain. A house is no different, but there's an exception when that house is your primary residence, again, that you've owned and or lived and lived in for at least two out of the last five years. If you are single, you can exclude up to $250,000 of gain from taxation federally. If you are married, file a joint return, you can exclude up to $500,000 of gain from federal taxation. I say federal taxation because, again, states could be different. For the most part, states piggyback off of federal, but, uh, you know, just got to give that blanket statement that states could be different. So uh, I'm not getting into state specifics in this episode. Um, The gain at a super high level is just what you sell it for minus what you paid for it. That's your gain. There's more to it than that. Um, Realtor commissions, for example, when you sell it, reduce the amount of taxable gain. They come right off the top. So if you sold your house for seven hundred thousand, you know what was the, was the contract price that you sold for? You paid four hundred for it, however long ago. That's a three hundred thousand dollar gain, all else equal. But you can deduct from that your realtor costs. So let's assume uh, what six percent on seven hundred. So let's assume you paid forty two thousand dollars in realtor expenses. Your three hundred thousand dollar gain is now reduced by forty two hundred. Uh, I'm sorry, forty two thousand. So now it's uh, what? It's going to be two hundred and fifty eight thousand dollars of. Uh, of, of gain left in this house. You can further whittle this down. There's other certain closing costs and things that, that further trim down that gain. What also reduces it is any improvements you made to your property since you've, uh, since you've had it. Now, improvements are not repairs. Repairs are like a bird flew into my screen and broke it, so I need to replace the screen and it costs 100 bucks. That's a repair. That's not an improvement. An improvement is something like you completely remo- you know, gut and remodel your kitchen or you add a deck that wasn't there or you add an extension on the house, or you put up a fence when there was no fence before. Those are all improvements. The cost of those improvements adds to what's called the quote-unquote basis of your house, or the the price which you originally paid for the house. So let's go back again and assume you paid $400,000 for this house 10 years ago, and you put in $100,000 of gains between uh, a new fence, redid a bathroom, um, put put on a deck, whatever. So you did $100,000 worth of improvements. Your, your quote-unquote basis or original cost now is going to be the 400 you paid plus the 100000 of improvements. So you now have a $500,000 basis or sort of starting point from which you, you uh, determine your gain. Let's again assume you sold it for 700 So now you sold it for 700 Your original basis is now 500 That's a $200,000 gain. Again, you can strip out realtor commission. So if that was 42,000, take 42 grand off that. And so, so these are all ways you can reduce the amount of your gain and therefore um, hopefully get yourself such that you, all your gain is completely excludable from federal taxation, which is again, 250 grand if you're single, 500 grand uh, if you're married. Now, you, you need to keep records of these improvements. Um, in the year you sell your property and you are claiming this gain exclusion, you're going to have to do the math of what was my original cost, what were my improvements, what was my sales price, what were all my closing costs, et cetera. The IRS, when you submit your tax return that year, you don't have to submit proof and evidence and receipts of all these things with it. But if and when the IRS ever audits you or questions you, you better have uh, and be able to substantiate the cost you actually paid. So like receipts or invoices or whatever for all the improvements you had, the closing statement when you bought and sold your house detailing out 
the purchase price, the sales price, the realtor commissions, the, the lawyer fees, all the other things. So you do need records of this stuff and improvements are no different. Now, realistically, um, if you lived in a house for 50 years, unless you're super diligent with keeping records, chances are you're not going to have uh, you know, receipts for all the improvements you made over those five decades. Technically, you know, as far as the IRS is concerned, you're supposed to. If, if, you're, if you're not and you, and you can't provide some sort of proof substantiating the uh, improvement, you shouldn't be claiming, uh, claiming it as a tax benefit. But anyway, so, I mean, do the best you can. Uh, w- knowing this now, right, going forward, there's no reason to not keep, impro- uh, uh, keep receipts or records of all the improvements you made. But going back decades ago, something you don't have, um, whatever you can cobble together to help prove the cost of something, you know, it's better than nothing. But in a perfect world, you should have legit real receipts or invoices or whatever for all of your improvements. So when you do claim to gain exclusion, you can back it up if the IRS ever asks you to, uh, to validate it. Next, I won't miss out on my tax break for qualified charitable distributions, otherwise known as QCDs. Let's start with what a QCD is. So if you are over 70 and a half and you have a traditional IRA and you are charitably inclined, you can donate cash straight away out of your, it doesn't need to be cash. You can actually donate securities as well, I think. But let's just let's keep, it, keep it easy and assume you're donating cash. You can donate cash straight away out of your IRA directly to the qualified uh, charitable organization. For example, uh, Red Cross, St. Jude's, March of Dimes, whatever, any qualified charity. There's, there's thousands of them out there. Uh, you're over 70 and a half. You want to give them cash. The best, most efficient, tax-efficient way to do it is to uh, send them money straight from your IRA via a QCD or qualified charitable distribution. A QCD is not when you take a distribution yourself, you take money out of your IRA, deposit it into your checking account, turn around, and then mail a check to the charity. That is not a QCD. That's a distribution followed by a donation. A QCD is the money has to go directly from the custodian, the IRA itself, uh, directly to the uh, qualified charity. So far, so good. Um, the benefit of QCDs is that they don't show up in your AGI in the first place. Whereas if you do take a distribution, turn around, mail check to charity, that distribution does show up in your AGI. And as I mentioned before, AGI can, can uh, trigger other taxes. So to the extent you can keep your AGI lower, great. And if you're charitably inclined over 70 and a half and have an IRA, a QCD is a great way to help manage and minimize your AGI um, compared to, to not. Um, so here's, here's the rub though. When you do a QCD, you will get a 1099-R at the end of that tax year from your custodian. It's going to look, this QCD is going to look like any other normal IRA distribution. So let's say you took $50,000 out of your IRA as, an, as a straight up distribution for you to actually you know, spend and, and live on. Additionally, you did a $10,000 QCD. You will get a 1099-R showing $60,000 of IRA distribution. There will be no delineation or, or note showing that 50 of that 60 was a real distribution. The other 10 was a QCD and shouldn't be taxable and shouldn't be included in AGI. The 1099 is not going to show that. So the onus is on you to be sure you remember you did the QCD. And if you do your own taxes, make sure you denote it accordingly on your tax return because the amount of the QCD will be stripped out from your AGI. Or if you have someone else do your taxes, make sure you tell them, hey, I did a QCD, here's the amount. Because otherwise, if they just get your 1099-R, they're not going to know. 
all 60,000 is going to look like a normal taxable IRA distribution that, that will get included in your AGI, but that's not accurate. So important to keep that in mind. I did a, a full podcast episode on QCDs, episode 75. Uh, you can find a link to that in the notes to this episode. And finally, the last tip, according to Wall Street Journal, to lower your taxes in 2024 or any year for that matter is, drum roll please, brrr, I should get a sound for drum roll. I don't have one. Uh, do I have anything? No, I guess I don't. Maybe I'll find one. Um, last tidbit, I won't get caught by higher interest rates on tax underpayments. This is a good one. So uh, this could be a whole episode. I mean, it has been a whole episode by itself, but the U.S. income tax system is a pay-as-you-go system. You are supposed to pay or remit taxes as you earn or receive income. Like when you're working, for example, and you get a paycheck every two weeks, you may not really think about it, but what happens is you get a paycheck every two weeks, you get a gross pay of, I'm just making this up, $5,000, let's say, and 1000 of it may get peeled off and sent away straight away to the U.S. Department of Treasury as tax withholdings. So your net paycheck is only going to be $4,000 because you know you got $5,000, but $1,000 was withheld for taxes. You walk away with uh, $4,000 getting deposited into your uh, checking account or whatever. That's paying as you go. Every paycheck you get, you are paying taxes as you're getting money. Um, easy peasy so far. When you are not working and you don't have wages anymore, uh, you, you and many times you have to uh, consciously figure out how to pay taxes. In some cases, you can have taxes withheld, like Social Security. You can have taxes withheld from that. Pensions, you can have uh, taxes automatically withheld from that. If you get a, a annuity, you can have taxes automatically withheld from that. IRA distributions, you can elect how much tax you want to have. Uh, want how much tax you want to have withheld from that. But what if you don't? What if you forget to have withholdings done? Uh, from these pay sources? Or what if you have a lot of income from things that uh, aren't able to have taxes directly withheld against, like brokerage income or bank account interest, for example? Um, in which case, you have to pay taxes yourself. So, so then what you have to do is you will have to uh, make estimated payments where every quarter you log into the IRS website, you manually make a payment from your bank account or whatever, um, and go about it that way. So now if you don't pay enough tax throughout the year, either through withholdings or estimated tax payments, you may get charged underpayment interest slash penalty where the IRS is saying, hey, you should have paid us X throughout the year. You didn't. We're going to charge you interest on that X for money you should have paid us but didn't. Now, historically, rates were low and the interest they charge wasn't that huge. But now short-term interest rates went up a lot. The interest rates that uh, the IRS charges on underpayments could be quite sizable. I forget the amount. I want to say it's 7 or 8% annualized interest is what they now charge on uh, tax underpayment. So not something you want to mess around with and, and, and miss. Now, it's common. People do often underpay, not intentionally, but it happens. And it's not the end of the world unless you owe like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of tax. These underpayment penalties won't necessarily be massive. But nonetheless, it's just something you should try to avoid, especially now that these uh, interest rates charge are a bit higher. So, all right. So that's that. That is the, the wrap for how to reduce taxes in 2024 or any year for that matter. Uh, hopefully you enjoy this. Hopefully you are... Um, happy to have this podcast back. If you haven't already, definitely check out the Facebook group, Retirement Planning Education. You can find a link to that in the notes to this. Definitely check out the YouTube channel by the same name. You can find a link to that. And also, if you haven't, uh, you can subscribe to the company's newsletter, Retirement Planning Insights. You can find a link to that in the notes below. That's that. Thank you very much. I'm parched. I'm going to get a drink and I will see you next week for my chat with Larry Pershing. 
The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.